Well, Merry Christmas, beloved church. I am known in my family as a bit of a Grinch. I think the insult is warranted. I am a Grinch. I accept it. Before this service began, a brother approached me and said, Ah, the anti-Santa. But in my defense, I believe I would be less of a Grinch if the focus of this holiday were more upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the title of my sermon this afternoon, if you didn't notice, on this Christmas Eve is The Hypostatic Holiday. An alternate title that didn't make the program is A Chalcedonian Christmas. If that was what Christmas was all about, then perhaps I would be less grinchy. Perhaps. No promises. (laughs) Well, I'm going to explain my title in just a minute. Let me give you a simple outline as we turn our attention to the epistle of Hebrews. And you can turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. First, by way of introduction, we'll consider the angels. The angels. And then, the hypostatic union. Christmas, the hypostatic union holiday. And then finally, why? Why the incarnation? Firstly, the angels. Secondly, the hypostatic union. And finally, why? Why the incarnation? Well, let us come to God in prayer and ask for his help. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask that you would, Lord, help us now. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, the Helper. Help us to understand this profound mystery, even as we just sung, the mystery of the incarnation. God in flesh, incarnate God, the God-man, the Son of God and Son of Man, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Help us to understand in truth and by your truth. Help us to understand what we know we will never fully understand because we are finite. Nevertheless, we come to your truth a well too deep to fathom, light that exceeds the heaven's reach. We come nonetheless to learn. We come to worship. And we come to worship the eternal, unfathomable, transcendent God. Transcendent God who has come to dwell with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Glory to God in the highest. In the exposition of scripture, this we pray in the name of the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Beloved, we are not alone in this universe. There are other sentient beings out there. And I'm not talking about the kind that are traveling through interstellar space in unidentified crafts. But celestial beings nonetheless. Beings from a heavenly spiritual realm interacting with and and preparing this fallen earthly world for the long-expected Redeemer. Whenever Christmas rolls around, I'm reminded of all of this extraterrestrial activity. The angel Gabriel, he, he came into the, to the world of men from the world of glory with a birth announcement. And then, as we heard, the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem witness then this heavenly choir in the night sky. Hark! The herald angels sing. 
Glory to God. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Heaven is watching in wonder. In wonder as the second person of the Godhead. As the eternal Son of God, the creator and sustainer of things visible and invisible. Heaven is watching in wonder as this one condescends. The very form of God. One with God. Equal with God. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. As the Son of God, He condescends now into the world of men. Heaven wonders and looks in amazement. It's no wonder that the angels are everywhere. They're all over the place. The very one they worship in sinless, heavenly perfection, world without end. This one, the creator and sustainer, the very one who gives them being, is descending. Descending into the world that rejects him. He came into this world, John chapter 1, verse 10. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He was, Isaiah 53, despised and rejected by men. Imagine with me. The angel Gabriel himself, who is a creature, who is created. Imagine when, when Gabriel was, was, was born, if I, if I can talk about angels that way. When Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, when he was created, imagine now, opening his angelic eyes for the first time, standing as it were before his creator and Lord in the world of glory, knowing that he was created to worship and to serve the Lord of the universe. And then, in the fullness of time, Gabriel is sent. He is sent from heaven and he comes to a lowly virgin and he tells her this my maker is coming to you he will be in you and he is coming to save you it's no wonder that there's so much angelic activity at and around the incarnation these things are truly those which angels long to look into. Now, while the incarnation is profound and a wonderful mystery, that from our human perspective and understanding, how much more from this angelic, celestial perspective? Again, these are truly things that they long to look into. They, with angelic intellect, unclouded by sin, not limited by the flesh, even they marvel in wonderment. And as active as the forces of light are, the fallen angelic world is as active. What the angels rejoice in, their wonder and amazement corresponds to demonic fear and hate and rage. What, what angels tremble at in worship, the demons tremble at in fear and, and in hatred, the result of which is a genocide of Bethlehem's infant population. Herod, who was co-opted by demonic forces, Herod killed babies in an attempt to kill the Messiah. 
And friends, there is no other way to describe the killing of babies but demonic and satanic. Now, all of this angelic and demonic activity, it makes sense. After all, this is the great fulfillment of what was promised way back in the garden. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And thus, this incarnation, it is as important, it is as essential, it is as necessary as His cross and resurrection. Which brings us to our text this afternoon. Hebrews chapter 2, let's begin in verse 14, and we'll read down to verse 18. Hebrews 2.14, the author of Hebrews writes, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, he himself likewise shares in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is also able to aid those who are tempted. Verse 16 says, For indeed... He does not, he does not give aid. He does not come to help angels. Now, if you were reading your Greek New Testament, it would sound like this. For indeed, he does not take hold of angels, but he takes hold of the seed of Abraham. And, and we know what the author of Hebrew means by, uh, the book of Hebrews, he, we know what he means by help here or aid, or as I mentioned, by this taking hold of. Verse 14 tells us, it tells us that he partakes, he shares in our flesh and blood. He became like them to save them. He becomes like us. He takes hold, as it were, of our flesh and blood. He helps us by becoming like us to save us from death to defeat our adversary, the devil. Therefore, verse 17, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Now, this is where the title of my sermon comes from. The hypostatic holiday. Now, hypostatic. Pastor Eric, what in the world? That is a big theological word that makes you feel smart when you say it. But it simply refers to this. It refers to the union of two natures in one person. Two natures united in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. The hypostatic union refers to the joining of two natures in one person. Jesus the Christ is truly God and he is truly man. Two natures. But he is one person. He is the Christ. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Christmas is the hypostatic holiday. 
For on Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation when the Son of God did not come to help the angels to give them aid, but he came and took hold of the human nature to help and to give aid, to save and to redeem the sons of earth. There are children who've been born in this context in the month of December. Every child born reminds us of the one who was born. This one Jesus Christ is fully and truly and completely God and completely man. We sing this, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. He came to save men, not angels, not fallen angels, but he came for sinners, for fallen sinners like us. Therefore, verse 17, once again, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make, in other words, satisfaction for our sins. To make atonement for our sins. So that we, so that we, fallen humans, fallen image bearers, so that we, and not angels, might be saved and redeemed. Listen to an old 16th century Lutheran. His name was Martin Kemitz. He writes this. The hypostatic union, or the incarnation, the incarnation is the work of the entire Trinity, by which the divine nature in the person of the Son alone assumes from the Virgin Mary a true human nature. The two natures, divine, human, God, and man, The two natures are inseparably connected and from them and in them is established one person in the incarnate Christ. This union took place for us men and for our salvation in order that the works of redemption by Christ, our King and High Priest, might be accomplished through the activities of each nature. Accomplished in one person and by one person. Beloved, the Son of God became the Son of Man. Two natures in one person. Jesus Christ, the God-Man. And He did this for our salvation. To save us. To save you. Again, Kemetz writes this. In Christ, the divine and the human natures are so united that they form one hypostasis. There's our word. Let me read that again. In Christ, the person, the divine and the human natures are so united that they form one hypostasis, that is, one person of the incarnate Christ. One person which consists of the divine and human nature joined together and united hypostatically, that is, personally. United personally in an inseparable union. Beloved, let me say this to you. Jesus is not a Savior from afar. He is a personal Savior. He is embodied. He is incarnate. He is true person. Look at verse 14 again. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shares in the same. Friends, he shares in our human nature to save humanity, to save 
humans, men and women, and boys and girls who look to him, who put their trust in him, trusting in who he is and what he has accomplished. From incarnation to crucifixion, from conception to ascension. But listen, beloved, he had to become like us, killable, dieable, murderable. Verse 14, so that through death, his death, death on the cross, through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He is not a savior from afar. He is not a distant savior. He is not a savior by proxy. No, he came. He takes flesh and blood. You remember from last week, what a glorious sermon our brother preached to us. We heard from Paul in Philippians chapter 2 about God the Son. We learned about his descent from heaven down to the cross. From the highest of the heights down to the lowest of the lows. Making himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness, not of angels, but in the likeness of men. He became obedient to the point of death, even the most extreme, even the death of the cross. He who was in the very form of God came down to be deformed on the cross. Why? To restore the image of God. The image that was once lost at the fall. An image that was deformed by sin and death. Why are the angels marveling? Why this hypostatic union? Why this incarnation? To restore the deformed image. Irenaeus of Lyon the great 2nd century church father, he says this, that when God the Father determined to rescue the human race and to restore us to His image, He sent His Son, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the exact representation of His being. He sent His Son to restore what was lost, to restore what was deformed by sin and death. And how does he rescue? How does he restore the image? Verse 14 says, through the incarnation. And we know, because the gospel is preached so consistently here, how does he restore that image? We know through the incarnation and, and also through his death, through his priestly ministry on our behalf. Verse 17 we know that the image is thus restored through the resurrection from the dead, having conquered sin through His ascension as He now sits at the right hand of the Father, fully restored humanity in Jesus, who is the image now imprinted upon all who trust in Him, upon you if you trust in Him. The true image of man of true man is reprinted, as it were, upon you who trust in the truest man who ever lived. This is the glory of God in the face of Christ. What was lost by the first Adam is restored in the last Adam. 
The image of God restored by the Son of God, who is the image of the invisible God. He became true man to bring fallen mankind back to the very person in whose image they were made to reflect. He became like Adam to do what Adam failed to do. I asked as I was reading this text and studying, but why then does the author of Hebrews say that Jesus came to give aid to the seed of Abraham? That's kind of a strange way to refer to humanity. Why does he refer to the seed of Abraham? What's Abraham got to do with all of this? Well, as you know from Genesis 15 and from Romans chapter 4, and also from just a few chapters down, Hebrews chapter 11, you know that Abraham is the father of what? He's the father of? That's right, everyone, not at the same time here. He is the father of faith. Good try. He is the father of faith. And he is the father of all who have faith in Christ. Galatians 3.29 says this. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All of this, all, all of this, friends, continues to boggle the angelic mind. They're no longer looking down. Remember, in the days of the tabernacle, in the days of the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubs were looking down upon the lid, upon the mercy seat of the Ark. They are no longer looking at the mercy seat. Now, now, upon the risen and ascended Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, they are looking in wonderment, in amazement, in eternal worship. These are the things that angels long to look into, which is why we see them in the book of Revelation, surrounding the throne in perpetual and eternal worship. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Friends, He came for us. He came, He incarnated, and took on flesh for you. Gregory of Nazianzus, another church father, the 4th century Cappadocian wrote this, That which is not taken up is not healed. That which is not taken up is not healed. He argues, If only half of Adam's nature fell, then Christ would only have taken up half of humanity to save that fallen half. But if all of Adam, if all of his nature fell, then the Son of God, in order to save Adam's fallen race, would take up all of his nature. And thus he, that is the incarnate Son of God, thus he is truly and completely man and will save the whole of man. This, beloved, is what Christmas is all about. If this is what we were talking about around the Christmas tree, if you will, then I would be less of a Grinch. But so it goes. This, beloved, is what Christmas is all about. This is what we celebrate. This is what we rejoice in. Not presents or trees or 
not food or festivity, not family or friends, all good things, great things, but means, all of them means to a greater end. You see, it's about joining the angels in wonderment, as Pastor Danny preached, in perpetual worship, worship of the incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, who gives aid not to the angels, but to us, to the seed of Abraham, those among Adam's fallen race who have placed their trust in the God-man, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. He is one person, two natures, hypostatically united, representing humanity and deity in indivisible oneness, without confusion or change, without division or separation. One Christ who is truly God and truly man. This is a great mystery. The scriptures testified that there is a great mystery here in the incarnation. We sang it. Come behold the wondrous mystery. 1 Timothy 3.16 says this, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Listen to a man named Ambrose. He was Augustine's pastor. He says this, With regards to the incarnation, and I was heartily encouraged reading from Ambrose. In this matter, my ignorance, he says, far surpasses my knowledge. But this one thing I know well, that I am ignorant of things that I cannot understand. Justin Martyr, a second century church father, writes this, Let no one ask me as to the mode of the union. Speaking of the hypostatic union. Let no one ask me, for I will not be afraid to confess my ignorance. Rather, I will glory that I believe in mysteries which cannot be described. And so I leave you this Christmas with a great mystery. Mysteries that, that we can glory in. Mysteries that we rejoice in despite our ignorance. We sing, come behold the wondrous mystery. And while I leave you with mysteries, I, I, I also want to assure you of our salvation this afternoon, this Christmas Eve. I want to assure you of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Beloved, the incarnation assures us of our salvation, of our future glorification. Listen to Kemets. He argues this, that it is a great comfort that the surest pledge of our salvation, the guarantee of our salvation and glorification is the human nature of Christ seated now at the right hand of the Father. Where, where He, that is Jesus, where He appears before the face of God on our behalf. He is, we are, flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. And thus, by this tie, by this bond, we shall be joined forever to God in eternal life. He is 
as he is, so also shall we be. Therefore, verse 17, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Amen. We come to God in prayer. Holy and merciful God, have mercy on us. We are undeserving. We, we are in fact ill-deserving, but you love us yet still. You continue to forgive our sins and shower us in your grace. You who did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all. Mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, and that for unworthy sinners who sin against your goodness and grace. Forgive us, Lord, and we pray increase our faith. Faith to believe and trust in your Son, our Lord and Savior. Give us the gift of faith. Increase our faith and conform us into the image of your Son. This is our prayer. Hallelujah. Glory to God in the highest. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.